Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. What happens when the kingdom comes into the world? That's the question with which Matthew will end his gospel, the question that Jesus will answer in the Great Commission. That is also the question Jesus answers by the miracles he works in our text. No doubt, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, the disciples thought back to these events. So what happens when the kingdom comes into the world? All authority is given to Jesus. The gospel goes to the nations. The disciples confront the power of Satan. God's people are given new life, and their fasting is turned to feasting. All of that is the subject of today's sermon. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Well, this morning we come to Matthew chapter 8, verse 23, and we will consider down through chapter 9, verse 17. This is the Word of God. Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be, that even the winds and the sea obey him? When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men, coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from them there was a herd of many swine feeding, so the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished into the water. Then those who had kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. So he got into a boat and crossed over and came into his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. 
Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, and the wine is spilt, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Let us pray. God and Father, we pray now that by the Spirit you would open your word to us so that it would be, in fact, by the Spirit, Jesus preaching to us. For we, would, we know we need your word, we need the power of your Spirit, that we might glorify you, that we might know you, that we might be your light to the world. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What happens when the kingdom of God comes into the world? Well, all power and authority go to Jesus. The gospel goes to the nations. The disciples confront the power of Satan. God's people are forgiven, healed, and given a new heart. And these are the very things we see if we fast forward to the end of Matthew's gospel, which closes with the Great Commission. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he tells his disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he tells them, you teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. The implication being that if God's people teach others to obey all that Jesus had commanded, they first must do it themselves. And finally, Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The implication being that God's people are characterized by rejoicing, for as Jesus says in our text, can the friends of the bridegroom rejoice and mourn, I mean, can they mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And being with us is exactly what Jesus promises always. Now, why am I saying these things? Because these truths are exactly the truths that are the point of our passage. You have here, as it were, a dramatic prefiguring of the Great Commission, of the kingdom coming into the world. Now you may wonder, how do we know all of this? How do we know all of this goes together? How do we know that Matthew 8, 23 through, verse, through chapter 9, verse 17 go together? Well, we know it because Matthew uses a certain structure in relating these ten miracles following the Sermon on the Mount. He groups three miracles together, followed by a general response of the people, followed by two interchanges with specific people in which points of teaching are made. We saw that pattern last week when we considered his first three miracles, and we see it today, again today as we consider the second three miracles. And that's how we know 
that all the events in our text today are thematically connected. And that theme has to do with what does it mean for the kingdom to enter the world. For the kingdom entering the world is exactly what Jesus came to do, and it is exactly what he did in his life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension. So let's look at how Matthew lays these things out for us. Well, the first thing that the kingdom means is all power and authority going to Jesus. And that is Matthew's main point with all of these ten miracles. Matthew is building his case that Jesus is the prophet like Moses, whom Moses foretold in Deuteronomy. And as Matthew builds his case, it becomes apparent that Jesus is not just like Moses, he is greater than Moses, for he has greater authority than Moses. Jesus speaks with greater authority than Moses, and he acts with greater authority than Moses. And as Matthew continues to build his case, it becomes increasingly apparent that Jesus speaks and acts with the authority of God himself. He speaks and acts with the authority of God himself over the elements, over the wind, and over the sea. He speaks and acts with the authority of God himself over the spiritual elements, Satan and his demons. He speaks and acts with the authority of God himself to forgive sins, not just personal forgiveness of sins for personal sins against Jesus, but all sins against God and men. And thus Jesus speaks and acts with the authority of God himself to give life, to pronounce someone alive from the dead, and right with God. And all of this is going to build and build and build throughout Matthew's gospel until we reach the end and Jesus says to the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is the case that Matthew is building. And we see him doing it very powerfully in our text. Now, when the disciples heard Jesus say to them, before he ascended into heaven, all power and authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, no doubt they would have thought back to the events of our text. No doubt they would have remembered back to the time when Jesus, with a word, calmed the sea and the winds. No doubt they would have remembered the time when Jesus, with a word, cast out demons from these men. No doubt they would have remembered when Jesus told this paralytic his sins are forgiven and then told him to take up his bed and walk, and he did so. So they have these events that would have fleshed out and let them know in a very tangible way what it meant when Jesus said that all power and authority had been given to him. So this is what we see before our eyes in this text. So all power and authority go to Jesus. That's the first thing that happens when the kingdom comes into the world. The next thing that happens is that the gospel goes to the nations. It stops being largely restricted to Israel, one tiny nation, and it goes to the nations, to the ends of the earth, which Satan has kept in almost utter and complete dark, uh, darkness for thousands of years since man's fall into sin. 
and taking the gospel to the nations, to pagan nations, where there's been no gospel influence, where the light has not been, means that the disciples encounter the power of Satan in a way they have never dreamed of before. Or to use the words that Jesus will later use when speaking to them, they are going to encounter the gates of hell. Jesus will later tell them that he is building their church, his church on them basically, and the gates of hell will not prevail against them. So we see Jesus here in our text leaving the adoring crowds of Galilee, taking his disciples, just them, just Jesus in this small group, getting in a boat, going across the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee was not um, a big uh, obstacle to these disciples. You remember there are several of them are fishermen who make their living on the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus takes them across now to demon-infested pagan Gentile lands. And it it quickly becomes clear that now the disciples are encountering forces that are far beyond human and forces that are far beyond their power and ability to face. On the way over, they encounter a violent storm that comes up out of nowhere. Now, it seems from the English like, okay, this is a thunderstorm. And you all know, like in the summer, where the heat builds up during the day, you can have thunderstorms come up. That must have been what happened. No, that's not what happened. In the Greek, it literally means there was a great quaking or shaking of the sea. This is something that came up out of nowhere, and it was not a normal storm. Well, the disciples are nothing. You know, if, I don't know if you've ever been at sea, in a rough sea, or maybe you've ever been out in, in the mountains in the wilderness areas when a storm comes up uh, or something like that. But when nature starts acting in this way, you feel about this big. You feel like you're about an inch tall because you start realizing that the forces of nature, the wind, the sea, the mountains, they don't care if you live or die. It means nothing to them. And so the disciples are frightened. They realize they're no match for these forces. They're about to be swallowed up by the sea. And that's the first lesson to them and to us. The disciples of themselves are absolutely no match for what Jesus is sending them up against. And we are absolutely no match of ourselves for what Jesus is sending us up against. But that's only the first lesson. The second lesson is that Jesus is more in a match for these forces. Uh, Jesus is sleeping. And when he wakes and they say they're perishing, he says, O ye of little faith. Now, he's not condemning them for, uh, for misassessing the situation. He's not saying, oh, this isn't really a storm. Oh, you're really stronger than the sea. This is no real threat. That's not what he's saying. He says, oh, ye of little faith, because they're forgetting who he is. They're forgetting what his power is. And that's the second lesson. He is more than a match for the power of the wind and the waves. He says a word. He says a word. He doesn't roll up his sleeves. He doesn't break a sweat. He says a word. And the sea instantly goes from being violent to being completely calm. And the disciples marvel. Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? They are blown away. 
they go from being almost blown away in one way and being completely blown away to being completely blown away in another way. They are blown away by his power and authority. Jesus has absolute authority and he exercises absolute sovereignty over the elements. And who can that be? Well, to ask that question is to answer it because the, the wind and the waves obey no one but God himself. And that is the point. Now, when they reach the other side, they find the same thing in human form. The same forces in human form. Two demon-possessed men who are so fierce, they live in the, out and among the graves, they're so fierce that none of the locals, nobody can travel that, there. Nobody can go through there. Everybody has to stay away from there because of these men. It turns out the gates of hell are much closer than anyone would have thought. But there they are at the gates of hell. And here's another power the disciples are no match for. They're no match for the power of Satan and his demons. But once again, Jesus is. He casts out the demons with a single word, go. One word, go. The demons know he has absolute power and authority over them. They don't attack him. They say, why are you here? Who are you, Jesus? We know who you are, Son of God. Have you come to torment us before the time? They know that their fate is sealed. They know that Jesus has complete power and sovereignty over them. And so he casts out these demons with a single word. But it turns out that there's another aspect of the gates of hell that can be even tougher than demon-possessed men. And that is the unregenerate human heart, which we see in the townspeople. Jesus has just delivered their area from the menace of two demon-possessed men. But the people ask Jesus to leave. They beg him to leave. Now, later in the Bible, in the book of Acts, when we see Jesus call Saul of Tarsus, who's the main enemy, the main face of Satan at that time against the church. The one who's dragging away even women and children, throwing them in chains, uh, having them put to death because of the faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus strikes Saul down on the road to, uh, to Damascus. He changes Saul's heart in an instant. He converts him from persecutor to apostle. Jesus says, I got some things I want you to do. I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for me instead of how much suffering you're going to cause to me and my people. He calls him to be an apostle. He converts him from hostility to discipleship. And what a disciple. What a disciple Paul turned out to be. The question then arises as we see the sovereignty of Jesus over even fallen humanity. Why wouldn't he do that here? Why wouldn't he do this in the land of the Gergesenes? After he's calmed the sea and cast out the demons, why wouldn't he change the hearts of these people? We don't know. But we do learn two things. Only the power of Jesus can change the human heart and produce faith and repentance and love within it. And we learn that in Christ's sovereignty... He doesn't always change hearts when and where we would like 
or even in a way that makes sense to us. Does it make sense to us that Jesus himself goes to the Gergesenes, shows all of this power, and the people ask him to leave, and he does? Is that the way you would write the story? I don't think so. But that's what happened. All in the power and the sovereignty of Christ. We start seeing that Jesus is sovereign over all of this. He has all power and authority. He's sovereign over all the elements. He's sovereign over the, the powers of Satan. He's sovereign over the unbelievers. And he's sovereign over the going to the nations, the encountering of the gates of hell. And he's sovereign over the preaching of the gospel. And he's sovereign over the results of that preaching. We're offered no explanation. But he is the Lord. Well, the next thing we see is that the kingdom entering the world and the absolute authority of Jesus do not simply bring about changes with regard to the pagan nations and encountering the gates of hell. It also means big changes for God's covenant people. And that is what we see with the account of the paralytic and the various interchanges that follow. Jesus leaves the pagan lands and returns to his own city of Nazareth. And there a paralytic is brought to him. Now this is the same one that's related in great detail in the Gospel of Mark, where they can't get to Jesus in the house, and they have to go up on the roof and cut a hole in the roof and lower the man down on a bed. Matthew doesn't give us all those details because he wants us really focusing on Jesus and his authority. But we're talking about here the same uh, person and the same friends who are bringing him. Now this paralytic, in addition to being a real man who's really paralyzed, who needs to be healed, who needs to be forgiven, is also a picture of Israel, God's covenant people, who are powerless within themselves to do and to be what God has called them to do and to be. The paralytic may even want to get up and walk, but he can't. He can't. And this is something that Israel came to learn through her whole tragic history. Even when she had the ability to will to do God's will, which she often didn't even have that, she did not have the power in herself to do it. Israel, as a nation, perpetually failed to do and to be what God called his people to do and to be. He called them to love him, in a word, to love him, and to love one another, and to observe all that he commanded, and in this way to be his light to the world. But instead of being like a great river of living water flowing to the world, Israel became like a big beaver dam. That's just a bunch of tangled sticks and trash and junk that's keeping the water of life from going through. That is the picture, and of course that's the picture of all of us, apart from Christ Uh, forgiving us and saving us. So God's people, and by extension that means all of us and that means all of the world, need to be forgiven. They need to be given power in their limbs to be strengthened. They need to be given a new heart. And this is why God promised a new covenant. A covenant in which instead of putting his law on tablets of stone, he would put it directly into his people's minds, he would write it directly on his people's hearts, and then truly, he promised, in that day, in substance and not just in name, his people would really become God's people. 
They would know what it means to be God's people. They would know what it means to really have God as their God. Well, how does the paralytic picture this? First of all, there is a suggestion in the Greek text that the paralytic's physical condition was somehow connected to his personal sin. Now, let me say very quickly when I say that, that the Bible, and in fact Jesus himself, make clear that not all physical ailments and conditions are connected to personal sin. They're all connected to sin generally because they entered the world when Adam sinned, but they're not necessarily connected to sin specifically. Every time you get a cold, when you get the flu, uh, when you twist your ankle, it does not necessarily mean that you have sinned in some kind of specific way. We know from Paul that he was given a physical ailment. Jesus himself gave him this ailment. Paul asked for it to be removed. Jesus said, no, because I, I, you need this, Paul. You need this because I need to keep you humble this way, and I need to keep you ever mindful every single day that my grace is sufficient. And so Paul said, I, I figured it out. I figured out the formula. When I'm weak, I'm strong. Okay, so that had nothing to do with Paul's particular sin. It's just Jesus working in his life. Um, in John chapter 9, we read the great miraculous story of Jesus uh, giving sight to a man who was born blind. And his disciples asked him, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's the working assumption. Did he sin? If he was born blind, it must have been some sin in the womb. I don't know how that works. But, or did his parents sin? But Jesus said neither. Neither he sinned nor his parents sinned that he was born blind, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. So we cannot infer backwards that just because somebody has a condition or a physical ailment or, or something, that there's some sin in their life. But that does not mean that there's never a connection. That doesn't mean that God doesn't ever discipline somebody or afflict somebody with an ailment because of some specific sin in our life. And our text here, although we're given none of the details, there is a hint, there's a suggestion, and I can't be dogmatic about it, but there's a hint, there's a suggestion that the paralytic's condition was somehow related to personal sin. And that's why Jesus, seeing his faith and the faith of his friends, says, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. I don't think Jesus is just making some kind of a theatrical point. He is addressing the root of the man's need, which is to be forgiven. Now, that's always true in a general sense. But we don't see Jesus doing this with any of the other people who come to him to be healed. He gives them what they want. He gives them what they came for, which is to be healed, and so he heals them. This man comes to him, doesn't say a word. The people don't say a word. Jesus speaks and says, be of good cheer, son. Your sins are forgiven you. And so there's a strong suggestion here that Jesus is really giving this man the root of what he wants. Of course, he needs to be healed, yes, and Jesus will get to that. But first, he's going to address the deepest need. The man doesn't ask for anything. Jesus just simply sees and responds. And in the same way, Israel, God's covenant people, needed to be healed. They needed to be strengthened to go from being a paralytic to being obedient. But first, 
They needed their sins to be forgiven. This is what Jesus did for the paralytic, and this is what he is doing for God's people in the inauguration of the new covenant through his life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension. It's about God's people really now in substance becoming God's people, which means they need to have their sins forgiven. They need to be healed. They need to be given a new heart. Now we see two responses, two responses that begin to emerge within the covenant people. Last week we saw one response, which was the people giving glory of God to God for the authority and the power given to Jesus. Now we begin to see a divergence even within the covenant of people. We've seen with the, in the land of the Gergesenes that people don't always respond favorably to the power and grace of God even in their midst. And now we're seeing it even among those who bear God's name, who if they're living up to their name are going to respond to him. But here we see two responses, one of faith in Jesus and glory to God. It says the people are amazed and they give glory to God that he has given such power to men. Not men generally, but power to men through the man, Jesus Christ. But then we also see a response of hardness and blasphemy. We see the people, uh, the most of the people responding like the paralytic. They're responding in faith. They're coming to Jesus. They're giving glory to God. But we see one of hardness and blasphemy, even while accusing Jesus of blasphemy. They blaspheme by accusing Jesus of blasphemy, and that is the response of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, as we see that the scribes, and, uh, the scribes initially are privately accusing Jesus of blasphemy. And ultimately, that is going to be the accusation for which Jesus will be framed and for which he will be delivered up for crucifixion. So here it starts. Here we have the seed of it. Here in their hearts, they're already putting Jesus on the cross and they're coming up with trumped up charges to do it. Now Jesus makes it clear in his response that their response to him is not due to some honest theological confusion. Like he's purporting to forgive sins and only God can forgive sins and, well we know what the, the next part, premise one, Jesus is forgiving sin, premise two, only God can forgive sins, ergo but they're not willing to go there. Jesus makes it clear that it's due to the hardness of their heart. He says, why do you think evil? Why do you think evil in your heart? This is coming out of hardness. It's not coming out of confusion. So we begin to see this division in the covenant people in terms of how the people respond to Jesus. Just like there was a division in the covenant people of old and how they responded to Moses, how they responded to David, how they responded to Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and all of the prophets. You have some responding in faith and others responding in hardness. And over time, all those who respond in faith, that becomes really the covenant people. God remade, he reshaped the covenant people around Moses, around uh, David, uh, and so forth, and now he is doing it finally and definitively around Jesus. So we see the hardness of the scribes and the Pharisees deepening as our text continues. The hardness is manifested as Jesus makes it clear 
that the form of God's covenant people and of the kingdom will be different than what the scribes and Pharisees had built their ministries, their reputations, and their careers around. The scribes and Pharisees had warped God's Old Testament promises into a constricted ethnic Jewish national ascendancy program. That's the way they saw the kingdom. That's the way they saw uh, the gospel and the covenant. But that is never what God promises. The Old Testament is full of God's promises that he's going to resurrect his people. He's going to bring about the new covenant that the gospel is going to the nations and that all the nations are going to come streaming in. So what God had promised and given uh, Old Testament Israel was an anticipatory picture of what would become a worldwide people of God, including people from every nation, language, and culture, based on faith in Jesus Christ, not only as Israel's Messiah, but as the Savior and Lord of the world. And the coming of Jesus means the fulfillment of God's grand promises is now dawning. And the transition from Old Testament Jewish type to New Testament worldwide realities is now underway. And this is why we have the interchanges at the end of our text, uh, all dealing with the form of God's covenant people, which is now changing, just as he said it would in the Old Testament. The old wineskins, the Old Testament shape and structure of Israel, cannot hold, and further was never meant to hold, the new wine of the kingdom of God, the pouring out of the spirit of Pentecost and these realities. So the shape and structure of Old Testament Israel was designed to accommodate an anticipatory version, a picture of the kingdom. With the coming of Jesus, we have the actual kingdom coming and the shape and structure of God's covenant people must grow up. It must come of age. It must fit now the realities of Jesus and the kingdom. And one of these things means is that God's people go from mourning to rejoicing they go from fasting to feasting, and that is what is behind Jesus' interchange with the disciples of John the Baptist who come and say, why do we, the disciples of John the Baptist, and why do the Pharisees, furthermore, one point of agreement we have on them, probably about the only point, we fast often. And your disciples don't. Why is that? Because fasting in the Jewish culture of that time was considered one of the seminal signs of true piety, of true godliness, of a heart for God. Somebody who fasted often, and they're wondering what is going on. John has been pointing to this man as the Messiah, and his disciples don't do this important act of piety. And Jesus tells them, look, you can't expect the friends of the bridegroom to fast when the bridegroom is with them. If the bridegroom is here, they're going to rejoice. And he says, now there's a time the bridegroom's going to go away. They're going to fast then. He's talking about the time when he goes into the grave. But then the bridegroom is coming back and promises to forever be with his people, something that he fulfills through the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting, again, this is not some bait and switch. This is not some sudden change. Jesus is not just going, hey, that was Old Testament. This is New Testament. This is the church of what's happening now. So just get used to it. Go with it. Ride with it. That's not what he's saying. God predicted all of this in the Old Testament. Hear the words of the prophet Zechariah. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. Therefore love, truth, and peace. People shall yet come, and inhabitants of many cities, and those of many nations shall come and seek the Lord. Yes, many peoples of strong nations shall come to seek the Lord. He's saying that when the new covenant comes, the pattern of fasting and mourning that was so much a part of God's people, understandably in the Old Testament, because they're like the paralytic. What do you think the paralytic's going to be mostly characterized by? Fasting or feasting? Well, when Jesus the bridegroom comes, when God himself comes to his people to make them now truly his bride, not just in name, but in heart also, that is a time for rejoicing. That doesn't mean that in the New Testament time that you can't ever legitimately have a fast, but it does mean that redemptive history is not an endless circle. It doesn't just go round and round. It goes forward, and Jesus has come. He has been born of a virgin. He's died on the cross once for all, never to be repeated. He's been raised from the dead once for all. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father once for all. And that makes a difference. And so in our liturgies, there may be a time, there may be a time of confession of sin that we may want to call a time of fasting and turning to God. But we never want the kingdom age, our worship together, uh, our lives in Christ to be overall characterized by fasting. Because we're not just going around in a circle. We are going forward because this is something that Jesus has accomplished. We never want to forget. Even, for example, when we're having a Good Friday service. And in some senses, we're trying to put ourselves back uh, and, uh, and, and see through the eyes of the disciples on that first Good Friday. In some sense, we're trying to do that. We can never ultimately do that, nor should we try. Because Jesus died for sins once for all, never to die again. We are not, in fact, back in their situation. He is raised from the dead, and He is at the right hand of the Father. And everything from that time forward needs to be characterized by that. And so we may fast temporarily, but we are not a fasting people. That's not our characteristic. We are feasting people because God has torn, turned our mourning into gladness. And he is calling the whole world to come from mourning to gladness. And that's what we're supposed to be calling them to do. Now, the proper response of God's people is faith in Jesus, as we see in our text. And it is covenant love and loyalty to God and one another. Covenant love and loyalty to one another. If you come to Jesus in faith, it's going to change your heart toward God. It's going to change your heart toward other people. It's especially going to change your heart toward God's covenant people. All the sinners that he saved. You're not going to focus mostly on the fact that they're sinners. You're going to focus mostly on the fact that they're sinners like you. Like you. And they're saved just like you are. The power of Jesus in our midst is going to be what characterizes us. 
Now, this covenant love and loyalty to God and one another is what Jesus is getting at when he says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy in that sacrifice. Now, mercy is not the best translation. Jesus here is quoting the Old Testament. Again, he's not coming up with something new. He's coming up with something old and making it new. He's quoting Hosea. And the Hebrew there is not the word for mercy. It's the word for covenant love and loyalty. It's a Hebrew word, chesed. Um, The New American Standard translates it as loyalty. The English Standard Version translates it as steadfast love. It's one of those Hebrew words that is so rich and so deep, it is really hard to capture it in a word or two in English. The Hebrew word basically refers to the heart of love and loyalty, the clinging. Remember, Jeremiah said, As a sash clings to the waist of a man, my people will cling to me. That's another concept in this word. It's this love and loyalty and clinging to God and to his people that God calls his people to when he says, Love me with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what covenant faithfulness is. And this is what the scribes and the Pharisees and Israel as a whole were lacking. They never had this kind of heart for God. Some Israelites did. You always had a David. You always had an Abraham. You always had a Moses or a Jeremiah. Yes, but Israel as a whole was never characterized by the heart and the love and the loyalty to God and one another that she should have been. Now, this is what Hosea says. The passage that Jesus is quoting is from chapter 6 of Hosea. Your faithfulness, notice what he's talking about here, faithfulness. Your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, like the early dew. It just goes away, it disappears. It's there one minute, it's gone the next. For I desire mercy, chesed. I desire covenant love and loyalty. I desire that you cling to me. I desire that you love one another. I desire this kind of steadfast love, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. In other words, what God is not saying that a heart of true love toward God is better than sacrifice, that is, formal worship. The two actually go together. He's not saying that the knowledge of God is to be, uh, is, we're to have it, and not burnt offerings. Again, formal worship. The two are to go together. What God is saying is that what I have joined together, you have put asunder. I join together love and loyalty and formal worship. I join together the knowledge of God and formal worship. But you have managed in your sin and in your many uh, devices, you have managed to separate what I have joined together. And if you're going to insist on separating them, if you're going to insist on separating the form from the substance, then give me the substance. But actually they go together. And this is why Israel, like the paralytic, needed forgiveness, healing, and a new heart. God finishes this passage in Hosea 6 by saying, look, I put the knowledge of God and this covenant love and loyalty together with formal worship But you, like men, some translations say like men, but the Hebrew word is Adam. You, like Adam, 
have broken the covenant. You have not given me this uh, heart of love and loyalty. So Jesus quoting Hosea and calling to mind what God actually desired and required should have had the effect of convicting the scribes and the Pharisees. That although they were righteous according to their own self-made religious standard, they were unrighteous according to the heart of love and loyalty that God actually desired and required, and thus they were just as needy as this paralytic. This is why Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What Jesus is getting at here is that, look, it's not really a matter of some people being sick and other people being well, some people being righteous and other people being unrighteous. It's a matter of some people being sick and knowing it, and other people being sick and thinking they're well. It's a matter of some people being unrighteous and knowing it, and other people being unrighteous but deluding themselves that they're righteous. Those are the two kinds of people in the world. Those who are sick and know it, and those who are sick and don't know it. Those who are unrighteous and know it, and those who are unrighteous and don't know it. Those are the only two kinds of people in the world, and we see them here in our text. The paralytic knows he needs to be forgiven. He knows he needs to be healed. He knows he needs to come to Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees harden themselves and they turn away from this knowledge. Well, it's a very rich text. There's a lot going on here. And all these things are connected. That's what we need to remember. They're all connected. They all go together. Power and authority Jesus. Gospel to the nations. Confronting the power of Satan and the gates of hell. God's people being forgiven and healed and given a new heart, being renewed, and then covenant love and loyalty to God and His people. You can't pick one or the other. That's a piece. It's all of a piece. It all goes together. You have it all or you don't have it. And that's what we need to realize, and that's really our application for us today. We face exactly the same issues and the exact same needs. Now, we don't face it in exactly the same way because Jesus has come. He is at the right hand of the Father. But we do go through periods of time where God's covenant people, if we're honest, we have to admit, are we really characterized by the covenant love and loyalty toward God and one another that we should have? Really? Are we overflowing with that? Are we overflowing with joy and rejoicing? If we're not, that means one thing. Lack of joy means lack of gratitude. It's just that simple. Gratitude makes for joy. Lack of joy means lack of gratitude. And if we're lacking in gratitude, we just have forgotten. We've forgotten who we are. We have forgotten what Jesus has done for us. We've forgotten. And sometimes we can say we've forgotten, and that still doesn't take care of the problem. There are times when God's covenant people have to look at themselves even after Jesus has come and said, you know what, we're like the paralytic. We're one of God's people, but we're not who we should be completely. We're not living it out completely. We're not, we don't have the power in our hands and the feet to do what we should be doing, to take the gospel as we should, to, to storm the gates of hell as we should. Um, we don't have the power to 
have this covenant love and loyalty to God and one another the way we should. And you know, the gates of hell today, just like the disciples saw, were a lot closer than they thought. They didn't have to go a long way to find them. And in America today, we're even closer. We don't have to go anywhere. The gates of hell are coming to us. The gates of hell are coming to us. We don't need to move. We're used to thinking in our country, oh, the gospel going, that means the gospel needs to go from America. Let me tell you something. The gospel needs to come to America. This nation, this people desperately needs the gospel. We're becoming the Gergesenes. And one of the things you see in the pattern in the Old Testament when you start looking for it is that one of the afflictions that comes upon a people who turn away, particularly people who turn away from the light, not just people who are in the darkness, but people who turn away from the light, which is what our country's done. We've known the light. We know better. And we've turned away. In our conceit, as we pat ourselves on the back as a nation about how great we are, and look, don't get me wrong, been great in many ways, but that's the blessing of God. That's the blessing of God. We've had a president now who've said we're basically not a Christian nation. We responded to the terrorist uh, bombings of 9-1-1 10 years ago by holding an interfaith worship service. I'm sorry, but it's not some interfaith guru who has all power and authority over this world. It's Jesus Christ. And if there was ever a time that we needed to go to him and acknowledge him, it was then. And it is now. And as people turn away from the light, God allows the demonic forces and the power of Satan to come back into a land in a way that has not been known for a long time. We have been so gospel-influenced, so gospel-saturated in this country, even though we're turning away, we take it for granted. We take our safety for granted. We take a certain amount of morality for granted. We take uh, just the way things ought to work. We just take it for granted. We just go, well, it's common sense. Well, it's not common sense. We just go, well, it's the natural law. It's not the natural law. It wasn't common sense to Hitler. It wasn't common sense to Stalin. The natural law to them was that they needed to kill everybody they didn't like. And they did it by the millions. And this idea that there's some kind of morality and goodness apart from Jesus Christ, is we're going to find out how crazy that is. You would think, having been through the bloodiest century in history, which was all done in the name of the rights of man, all of it, the 20th century, hundreds of millions of people dying in the name of the people. The greatest form of tyranny ever devised because it flatters the tyrannized even while it exalts the tyrant. It keeps telling the people, the people, the people, you have all the power. Power to the people. <laughs> the people die. When God is small and man is big, get ready for slavery, get ready for death in every direction. When man, is, when man is small and God is big, that's when you have freedom. And that's the only time you have freedom. 
So the gates of hell are coming to us today. We're already seeing the kind of demonic anger that's arising in our culture against Christian morality. I mean, just, just marriage. Something that really wasn't controversial very long ago. Marriage, sexuality, these kind of things. What the Bible teaches us is that when a culture goes polytheistic, it goes polysexualistic as well. It's inevitable because there's such a connection between us being made in the image of God and being created for communion with Him and the sexuality that God has given us. God loved that which is not like Him. You can't get more different than creator and creature. He created that which he doesn't need. He created that which is utterly dependent upon it, and he binds himself to us as love. And then when we depart from the living God and from the monogamy, the spiritual monogamy that he created us for, we inevitably are going to reject the sexual monogamy for which God created us, which pictures the spirituality. And we stop loving somebody different than us, which is what happens when a man and a woman love one another. You're loving somebody, and anybody who's married knows how true this is. You're loving somebody different from you. And we go away from that and we turn to perverse forms of trying to love ourselves through somebody just like us. That's what happens. But you begin to see the kind of anger and hostility that is now directed when any form of the Christian message uh, comes out in these matters. And it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. The gates of hell are right here. And we need faith in Jesus. That's the response. Faith in Jesus. We need to believe that he has been given all power and authority. That's what he said. That's why he said you take the gospel. If you're taking the gospel for any other reason than that Jesus has all power and authority, you're not taking it the way that he said. Now, Does this mean that we all have to have exactly all of our theology nailed down just just right? No, it doesn't mean that. Because we don't, and we're not going to. God's mercy covers that. But when we get to the fact that when Jesus says he has all power and authority, and when he's claiming all the nations as his, he means it. That's not some fine point of theological doctrine. That's basic. And when we don't believe it, Jesus takes it personally. Just like God took it personally when his people balked at taking the the land of Canaan in the Old Testament. They balked because they didn't believe basically that God is Lord over the land of Canaan. That he's more powerful than those nations. Or that he's claiming those nations. They balked. And God takes that personally because now we're talking about who he is and what he's done. The issue is, who does God want to bless? What kind of people does he want to work with? First, first requirement, we need to have faith in Jesus, which means we need to believe that he really is the one with all power and authority. And he didn't just calm the sea and the wind, and he didn't just cast out demons 2,000 years ago to make some kind of theatrical point. He did it to take his show worldwide, and that is through us. Jesus is sovereign over all of these things. And 
We need the covenant love and loyalty that he wants to see in his people. This is the fruit Jesus wants to see in his vineyard. Before Jesus ever works through a people, before he ever does amazing things through a people, the first thing he does is he produces this kind of heart of covenant love and loyalty in them. That's why the book of Ruth was written as a precursor to the birth of David. What does God do before the great king comes on the scene and begins to show his power? He does what you see in Ruth. Ordinary people, poor people, nothing big. Look, you, if you want to know what covenant love and loyalty looks like toward other people, read the book of Ruth. That's what the whole book is about. That's what God does before he starts calming the sea and otherwise. So we are in the same condition, I would submit to you, we're in the same condition as the paralytic today. That's where we are. And we need Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.